So, the um, as usual, we are continuing learning parish with the row of parishes by Yechi. Now, we are in the concluding parsha of Sefer Bereshis. So I thought what would be interesting was to kind of do an overview of Sefer Bereshis in the sense of what's the point of Sefer Bereshis? Why do these stories matter? Why do the Avos and the Imahos matter? Why, why do they really matter? Yeah, they're nice stories. Occasionally there's a lesson. But at the end of the day, we're the people of the book. When we say that, we really mean we're the people of the, uh, of the command. Right? We, I believe Rav Gon says that what makes us the Jewish people, what makes is the Torah equals the law. We're the people of the law. It's the mitzvot. It's the command. Synonymous with Jewish life is the halacha. So then what's with all the stories? What's with the fact that you open up, say, for Beratius and from Beratius until Shemos, you really, until really the Torah is given, there are so few mitzvahs. In fact, in Sefer Beratius, the Sefer Achinuch, which is one of the uh, books that counts all the mitzvahs, there are three mitzvahs. Asks Rashi, the very first Rashi actually in the Torah, one of the very first Rashi, quoting from his father, seemingly, because why does the, the Torah start with Beratius? Start with Hachodesh Hazelachem. Start with the first mitzvah. First mitzvah that the Jews are commanded with is to count the each month. Each month we are commanded. We are not more than commanded. We are also given the amazing power to be koveya, to be the, the deciders when the calendar will fall out. It's an amazing idea. It's an amazing idea. No, that we have the ability to decide. And we discussed this thing else. Um, we discussed this in other contexts. How we have the ability to decide when when Rosh Chodesh will be, and by that by dint of that, when when Pesach will be, when Yom Kippur will be, when Sukkot will be, we can decide that. That is the mitzvah in the Torah that we are the ones to decide when Rosh Chodesh is. So Rashi asks, why not start with start with Hachodesh What's with the whole idea of starting with Adam and going to Avraham and going to Yitzchak and Yaakov? All the way through this week's power show. So that's what the cheers can be about. But what, what, is that, what exactly does that mean? I think the question is twofold. The uh, one way to ask the question, uh, uh, look, I'm in class again. We got talking in class. You got to raise your hand. I'm sorry. Go to the go to the principal's office. Go to the principal's office. You were probably a terrible student. Why did you tell me about my favorite? She was. I'm sorry. I got kicked out of base rip good. <laughs> okay. So you know me already. All right. Yes. I think the question sometimes we can ask is what what's the um why does it matter from the perspective of the story? Meaning sometimes we we almost get into granular details. Was Avram three? Was he forty? Was he seventy? Like. Really? Come on. Just tell me the basic gist. Why do I really care? That's number one. And number two is, the broader question is, what's the significance and the function of Sefer Bereshis in the first place? Is there something about the pshat that impacts and shapes the world at large of Jewish philosophy? This is something we're supposed to get out of it. So Elliot already threw out, I think, in an enigmatic phrase, which I want to develop today, and that is the phrase of Maisa Avos Simen Libanon. Which means, again, it's enigmatic. It means the actions of the fathers are a sign for the sons. 
Depends upon the fathers? No, the, the actions of the fathers are... What does that mean? So what I want to do today is actually look at three approaches. We'll conclude with Roy Soloveitchik of what exactly this phrase means, and hopefully that can enlighten us into what exactly the purpose of Seva Bereshit is. And in general, whenever I give three approaches, there are going to be approaches here that may speak to you. It may not speak to you. Maybe it will partially speak to you. Maybe it will bother you. I'm okay with that. That's, what, that's my approach to life. Some things work, some don't work. My hope is that you'll see the breadth and the broadness of Torah, of Hashkafa, of Jewish philosophy. I, I enjoy that. I think it's meaningful to see the, how, how vast and broad the Jewish philosophy is. And if you came here just to get me to, you want to hear a clear-cut approach, then today's not your day. I'm sorry. So, the Medrash Tanhum is the first one who brings this up, although it doesn't use the exact phrase. This is the number two in the source sheet. Number one was the source we quoted. I read it outside. If you want to read it inside, you can, you can do it yourself. But number two is Medrash Tanhum, Parashat Lechacha, Parashat Tess. Amr Rabbi Yeshua, the Sachnin, Sivan Nasl and Al-Kadosh Baruch Avram. God gave a sign to Abraham, that everything that befalls Avraham will happen to his children. And if, listen, you think it's just a nice idea, but we actually see it play out even within the Bible itself. The, um, and I, I cut down the Midrash. Oftentimes, if anyone's familiar with uh, the way the Midrash works, Midrash is a very fascinating text, and the uh, discipline of learning Midrash in and of itself is a lot there. But there's a lot of sukkim that are quoted. Quote sukkim and, and verses to prove it. Um, I'm making a picture to learn Medrash, because there's a lot of very interesting things there. Now, you may say to yourself, well, Medrash, it's inaccessible, it's in Hebrew, it's in Aramaic, how am I going to learn it? Don't worry, Art School put out a 16-volume translated Medrash Rabbah. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, that's great, but who wants to spend the money? Don't worry, Anjei Chesed just bought it, and it's going to be on the shelves coming this Shabbos. Okay, now that I made that pitch. So, the Medrash on Chuma says as follows. Bochar ba'avram b'kol base of it. Though there was many, many uh, people living in the far, the far East, and God chooses Abraham. And then what happens? God then chooses, out of all the nations of the world, who gets the Torah? Abraham's children. A parallel. God says to Abraham, go for yourself. God says to the children, to the children, it's time for you to leave the, your birthplace. If you think about it for a moment, by the way, I think it's an interesting uh, discussion in itself. We, we, we tend to think of the Jewish people in Mitzrayim, they were foreigners, they were slaves, they didn't belong there. But if you put yourself for, for a moment into the uh, shoes of a Jew living in Mitzrayim who's been there for 400 years, they probably saw themselves as Mitzrayim, just the oppressed Mitzrayim. No? They were Matrium. They've lived there. Their fathers lived there. Their grandfathers lived there. Their mothers were there. They were, they were living there. And then God says, it's time to leave. It's like, why? Can you just free me and let me buy a house next door? Like, no, but I'm saying we see that throughout history, that oftentimes that when the oppressed is freed, they didn't mean they, they didn't leave. They just, they bought houses next door or they moved up north, whatever it may be. The, what's happening here is God's like, go, go and leave. But, that, but it's interesting, the Medrash is, is taking Avram and going to his, the, the, the Jewish people, but you can even do the same thing. You have Avram and Yitzchak. You have Avram and Yaakov. You see a lot of the same parallels. But let's go on. Last week we saw, we, we saw uh, Yosef and... Who did we see last week? We saw Yosef and Yehuda. Well, that wasn't father and son. Okay, fine. Then we saw... Um, 
So Avram, there's a famine. So what does Avram do? He goes to Egypt. The Jewish people, or in this case, the children of Yaakov, there's a famine. That's how they end up in Egypt. Um, so I, for some reason, when the translation was put in here, it wasn't put out well. But okay, fine. So again, it goes on parallels that the um, the, um, Av- the, the people, the Betrayim, attack Avram. They take they take Sarah. What happens to the Jewish people? Oh, they're gonna with the Jewish people. The, Pharaohs, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna want to grow and they're gonna conquer us. We have to persecute and oppress them. Then it says, eventually Avraham, well, in a different context, Avraham, there's these four kings we spoke about in the past. These were the four leading rulers of the world. Avraham overcomes them. In the future, this is the one thing that has not come to fruition yet. In the future, we, the Jewish people, are going to beat, win, overcome the four Malchios of the world. And in the four Malchios, that's symbolic to say that throughout uh, the long millennia of our Gullahs, there have the there have been these four Malchus, these four king, kingdoms, whoever they be, who have, again, it's, um, the, the allegories have always been kingdoms who have been oppressing us, who are epitomized by these four kingships. They've been oppressing us, but oh, don't worry, at the end of history, just like Avram emerged successful and vanquished these four kingdoms, we too will emerge victorious, and whether it's the kingdom of the Persians or the kingdom of whatever is oppressing us now, we will emerge victorious. So what emerges from this Medjus Tanfuma is if you look at the life of Avraham, you could see direct parallels to the life of his children, and then the way the Medjus ends off is, and don't think it just ended there, but even our own lives, you look at this long, dark odyssey of Gullus, and think about all the Jews living really in the darkness of when they really were oppressed, not now. It's like, oh, what's going to be? What's going to be? Well, Avraham emerged victorious, so too we will emerge victorious. If the Jewish people went down into the, the depths of Mitzrayim, but not only did they emerge Mitzrayim, they emerged the Rechush Gadol. They emerged with money. They emerged Rechush Gadol with great, with great money, and which many interpret doesn't just mean monetary, you know, uh, you know, money in their bank account, but it means they enlightened with with uh, a whole new way of uh, approach to life. So too we will emerge from our Gullus, our Mitzrayim, our darkness, the Rechush Gadol, and we will win as well. So this is the Medrash. Any thoughts, comments? I have yes. Okay, so that question is totally off topic. But it's a great question. Maybe we could do a Q&A one time, or we can address it in another shear. Okay. So I'm not going to address it now, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very fair question. It's a, it's, a, it's, a amazing, it's a great, good question. All right, keep back there. As you said, you always thought it. You're going to take it a little longer. Okay. Fine. So what I want to see is I think there are, there are some things that, about this idea of myself as Sin On the one hand, it's interesting. It seems there's some sort of veracity and accuracy to it. But on the other hand, it also there's something... Maybe bothersome about it. What about where's the free will here? What's the point? What's going on? Maybe even perhaps, and so what? 
They were thinking, I, I think when I first, okay, great. So what happens to our fathers happens to us. V'ozma, as they say in Hebrew. V'ozma, now what? All right, great. Whoop-de-doo. Like, what do you do with that information? So what I want to look at is three different approaches. The first approach is the Ramban, Nachmanides. Nachmanides was perhaps the greatest biblical commentator, along with Rashi, but one of the greatest commentators. He was a prolific author because he wrote a commentary on the Gemara. He wrote a commentary on the Chumash. He also wrote commentaries that involved Kabbalah, Halacha, really Machshava, Jewish philosophy, everything. He covered everything. What did he say? He, when did he die? You, don't put me on the spot here. Um, he died in, in Middle Ages. Uh, he died in 1100s. I, I'm, I'm going to butcher it. Yeah, he was contemporary of the Rambam, that whole period. Um, 700s, not 1400s. No, no, no. 1100s. I, I don't remember the exact date. I'm sorry. So, he's going to give it. It's going to be a, a little bit more Kabbalistic. Um, it's going to be a little more of a Kabbalistic answer. But I'm going to throw it out either way. But just one, one I, I think actually I mentioned a story before, but this is a great story. I'm going to mention it again because it's a good story. The, um, in, they once asked Ravarin Lichtenstein if he was on a desert island, what safer he would take with him. And he said he would take, they thought he'd say the Ramban. He said he'd take the Ramban, the Ramban because it's just such an amazing work. That's what it was. So while we mention that, this is the story I want to say. More inspiring. When I was in Karen KBY, we had a Q&A. I guess that's the question you ask. Well, if you had to go to an island, if you could take one person with you, who would you take? So they asked the Rosh Hashiva. He said, the Chaznish. And they asked uh, someone else, and he said, I don't know, the Ramban. And they asked Mashkiach, who's in charge of our ethical behavior. He goes, my wife. At <laughs> point, you see the Rosh like, ah, can I change my answer? Is it too late for that? Okay. So the Ramban, and the Ramban also, he, he, when, when Rashi wrote his running commentary, Rashi was often commenting on one Pusik. And he, it was almost in abstract. Here is the interpretation for this Pusik, and therefore sometimes there could be contradictions. It's less problematic. Because Rashi also based himself on Midrashim, and sometimes you have Midrashim that contradict the same way you have Gemaras that contradict with each other. The Ramban was writing a running, consistent co- um, co- uh, commentary, which means that the Ramban, not only is it all consistent, but he also expected you to know what he wrote everywhere. He expected the reader, which makes it complicated, to know his entire corpus, and therefore everything makes sense. So sometimes you're going to go like, as we know. You're like, well, I don't know, because I just don't know everything you wrote. So now they have the Moshe Cook put out a Ramban with footnotes that says, look here, look here, look there, and they'll, they help you out. The Ramban, therefore, says that this idea of Misa of a Sibin Lebanon, what happens to the fathers, is a sign for the children. This is a, is a concept that comes up about 25 times, and he lists about 25 parallels throughout the Chumash. And he says that its history is just destined to repeat itself. That's what he says. It's just the way it is. And he says, I'll tell you a rule. This is what he says. Overlook a cloud. Here is the rule. Tovanosa, the Cholaparshus Abos. This is found in Voracious Yud Base. This is source number three. This is a very important rule. And it was said, very, it was said in a very uh, uh, cursory manner. But even, don't, basically what he's saying is, don't be uh, fooled by the cursory manner in which it's stated, because it's a major, major principle. 
Everything that happens to our fathers is a sign for the children, as in, it's going to happen to our children. Almost think about, don't think of history as linear, think of history as, as yeah, as a, as a spiral. It's going to happen again. He says, why then does the Torah go into great detail about the travel from here, the travel to there? Who cares? Great! Okay, sometimes, I know you've had this experience, I love to read, but sometimes I'm reading a book and it's like, okay, I'm going to skip a page because I don't care about that particular detail. You don't, you don't have to quote me one study, not four studies. A friend of mine, David Beshevkin, wants to tell me a great clow. There are some books that are really just a good article in the New Yorker that the author decided he can make money off of, or she decided she can make money off of. It's like after you read the first chapter, you're like, okay, fine, I know the rest of it, I'm going to read the end. So like, why all the details? The Ramban says, I'll tell you why the details. Because in all the details, you're going to really, what you're really seeing is you're reading not just the history, but you're reading your own life. You're reading your own life. And he says, All these stories are coming to tell us about now. Because when the, when the Torah is telling us about the things that happened to the three forefathers, really we're learning that things, and this is the key word, that were nigza. Because they did certain things, now we're learning what was decreed on the children. Meaning, when they did actions that then decreed that it must happen, deterministic here, that it must happen to the children. Misa of a simon Labada means that almost like they were writing the history, and they were writing the future. They decreed it should happen. And the Ramban says it happens, by the way, both for the positive and for the negative. He says as follows, that when Avraham sinned, that he, the Ramban understands that Avram sinned by going down to Mitzrayim. He sh- Sorry. He's, Avram sinned when he said that Sarah was his wife. He should have trusted... A, no. Sorry. He said Avram sinned by going down to Mitzrayim. He should have trusted Hashem. And Hashem said, let us go, go for yourself. Go to Eretz Yisrael. Should have said, God said, go to Eretz Yisrael. What are you, what are you leaving, why are you leaving Israel for? Oh, there's a famine? Okay. But God said, go there. So what are you leaving for? It was... Ramban faults Avram for then leaving, and he says because of that, because of that, he was um, he was he was punished by having his wife taken away from him in Mitzrayim. But because of that, then it was decreed that his children should also be destined to be stuck in Mitzrayim as slaves. Maisa avo simin Laban. What happens to the fathers happens to the children. Again, I don't totally know how to square this with the fact that there's a sermon deterministic element to this. Where's the free will in this? Although, again, let's, if we take a step back for a moment, there is, I think the tension of religious history is the very fact that we believe in free will and we believe God guides history. And I don't know if anyone knows how to square that. Meaning, in our personal lives, so there's been a lot of ink spilled about, we discussed this in a share a couple weeks ago, how to square the fact that God knows everything and how can we have free will. Okay, that we can, have, we can give a lot of shiurim on. I don't know how much ink has been spilled on this, the broader question of God's hand in history, God guiding history, and the fact that there has to be also free will in every aspect of it. I mean, the question really more is, why is the children being punished for the sins of the Father? That's, that's, that's another question. Correct. That's a different question. It's a, it's a different question as well. So again, I don't. I, I'm not really sure. I'm, I, I'm not really sure about the Ramban. I'm quoting because he's a major. It's a major position. It's beyond me. 
Um, but I think it has to be said. But I'll tell you this much. There's women that there's consequences of behavior, and sometimes beyond. So, I'll, so I'll tell you two things. I'll, I'll tell you two things. I'm going to tell you one more example where it works for the positive, and then I'm going to give you just a, a general idea where we see at least, although they're unbound, I, I don't, I don't necessarily understand it, but I'll show you how we, the Jewish people, have embraced it to some extent. So. In this week's parsha, Yaakov is returned to Israel. Where Yaakov dies in this week's parsha, parsha is Vayichi, and he's returned to Israel. The Raman says as follows: the same way Yaakov is returned to the um, is, is, when he dies, he, he's returned to Israel, and he's returned to Israel with the aid of the non-Jews. Right, all the non-Jews come and they put their they, the, 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 the kings put their crowns on his coffin. So too, the Jews will return to Israel in messianic times with the help of the non-Jews. That's what he says. Interesting observation. I thought Moses took him. No, no, not Yosef. Talking about Yaakov. Yaakov. Oh, Yaakov. So it's an interesting, interesting observation that we see myself as a It's not, it's not a negative. It's a positive. The non-Jews, by the way, maybe you saw that happen in 1948 when the UN resolution, perhaps the only thing the UN ever did positive. But um, we saw the non-Jews help Yaakov be buried, and then the Jewish people returned to Israel with the non-Jews. Okay, that's just another place that plays out. But here's what I get. I'm not totally sure how to square this. There's a lot of more. I have a lot more questions than answers. Well, give me one second. But I, but before I get before I'm gonna get to Harris' question, then I'm gonna yeah. The two aspects are not necessarily contradictory. God <clears throat> manages the history, sending us to foreign countries. But it's up to man to deal with that circumstance. Avram didn't have to say his wife was his sister. Yaakov didn't have to say that either. So God is placing us in circumstances repeatedly until we learn how to deal with them. I want to leave this question aside because I think it has to be developed more before we can really start giving answers and to see if the answers will hold up philosophically, logically, religiously, whatever other term you want to use. Fair? Okay. So again, the question we had was, what was this my, okay, idea of mice always sibling labanim? What happens if follows happens to the sons? The Ramban gives a very what I'm calling deterministic idea that when uh, the, when the avos, the three avos, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov did things, that made it determined. It was Gozer, decreed on the children that it happened. We saw both in the negative. Avram di- didn't listen, had a lack of faith, and it was decreed on his children. They too were now had to go to Mitzrayim. We saw in the positive, Yaakov g- gets brought up, and the nations of the world helped Yaakov go get returned to his final resting place. And now, ultimately, when the Shiach comes, the Messianic times, and we go to our final destination, the nations of the world will help us get there. Again, I think there are a lot of questions, but listen to what Professor Yosef Yerushalmi, anyone ever hear of Yosef Yerushalmi? Great professor on, of, of history in Columbia University. So he wrote, he had a very, it's a very small book, it's about 150 pages or so. When I was first getting into history, I was in high school, so I spoke to a historian, my, my, one of my closest friends' uh, uncle is a very prominent historian, his name is Professor Jay Berkowitz, Berkowitz. Professor in, uh, I think, UMass Amherst. His area is French Jewelry. You've heard of him? or You've heard of him. Okay. So I said to him, I'm getting into history. What book should I read? He said, before you even begin reading history, you need to read Yosef Yerushalmi's book. The book is called Zohar. And the observation he makes is that until the modern era, you don't really find any books of Jewish history. Jews just were not engaged in writing books of history. I mean, you have Josephus, but that's about it. So what's with this gap? 
Why is there, you look at the Jewish, Jews like books. You can't deny that. We have thousands and thousands of books. But there's no books of Jewish history. What's going on here? The Romans wrote books of history. Again, we... we no, no, but we didn't. We, we wrote everything else. We didn't do history. We didn't write history. Now again, the, the concept of history and how and how to write history that's obviously evolved over years. But we did not do history. And so Professor Yushami says as follows: because we did not write history books, because what we we didn't see ourselves as recording history. We we, we saw ourselves in the in the um, practice of zakhar of memory, of memory, not history but memory. And he writes as follows: this is what he says. He says, there was a pronounced tendency to subsume even major new events to familiar archetypes. For even the most terrible events are somehow less terrifying when viewed within old patterns rather than in their bewildering specificity. Meaning to say as follows, rather than seeing things historically as linear, we saw things, we preserved things as memory. We preserved things as part of a culture. Part of this is how, how we're going to remember it, and also, therefore, things fit into a greater pattern. Thus, the latest oppressor is Haman, and the court Jew tries to avoid disaster is Mordechai. We're constantly, we're constantly taking the past and saying the past and the present are very much interwoven. Christendom is Esau, or Edom, and Islam is Yishmael. The essential contours of the relation between Jews and Gentiles have been delineated long ago in rabbinic agenda. Geographical names are, bl- are blithily lifted from the Bible and affixed to places. The Bible never knew, and so Spain is Sfarad, France is Sarfat, Germany is Ashkenaz. What he's saying is that we have always, in a way, kind of, again, think of this the spiral, rather than looking at things... Is linear. It happened in the past, and now here's a new event. Through memory, we preserve we preserving our culture, and we're saying that the past and the present are fused as one. It's one long memory. It's not a, a story remembering things, but it's us internally remembering things. It's going to our elders and asking them, "Tell me what happened to you," because it informs what's happening to me. So, in a way, the, the we what he's saying is, and I think it plays into this idea of mice of a simlevanim, as problematic seemingly as it, as it sounds of. How can it be that it determined from our fathers to us? But yet, that's just the way the Jews have always looked at it. We never looked at its history. Yeah, the story of Abram is our story. The story of Yitzhak is our story. The story of the Jews in by Haman, that's our story. How often have we heard, have we felt, do we feel a certain kinship to the story of the Bible? Because we're like, yeah, we, we see the way our lives play out in that story, whether for good or for bad. That's supposed to be consoling. I, mean, I don't know what the point of that is. I think it's reality. I think we just, we've always done it. And his point is, Jews have always done this, why we never engaged in writing history books. We always did it. I think there is something consoling about it, but it's also just, I mean, we, it's just the way we, we viewed our lives. That when the Jews were going through bad times, it was Haman. It was a mullet. It's just the kind, we, we always we kind of looked into the past and said, like, it's very much fused with the present. So you say, okay, well, big year is another bad time. I'm not, I'm not sure, again, I'm not sure I understand what, what really the point is, whether it's linear or spiral. I don't see... I'm, I think it's just a reality of how we have always viewed our times. If it's linear, it's still a reality, too. It was, it was, you know, if, it's, if it's happening now, the reality is it's happening now. So, again, whether it's spiral or linear, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll get the point. What's the no, I, I think it's just, it's just a, again, I think it's a reality of how we have viewed our times. If you look through the Holocaust literature, people writing, more often than not, you find this kind of like, 
a lot of quoting of Eicha because they just they, they saw themselves as part of this almost this Mesorah of like this is it, it's happened before it's happening again we're almost a kinship to the past this is part of what it is you see even the words that you're using they're always in a Amalek it's just we we, we Every Jew is obligated to say, this is a quote from a Medrash, when will my actions get to the level of my forefathers? If you look at the source sheets, this is on the last source. The patriarch, patri- the patriarch Covenant imparts teaching to the Jewish people by example, rather than by prescription. While the Sianatic Covenant, as in Harsinai, tells Jews what to do and how to act as members of the covenantal community, the patriarchal covenant addresses the eye awareness of the Jew in teaching him how to experience his Jewishness. So what Rabbi Salvechik is doing is contrasting there are two there are two covenants going on here. We have a relationship with with the Torah as in the law book, I would say from Shemos and onwards. And we have the relationship with Sefer Bereshit, which is not a law book as we noted, but the book of the patriarchs, the book of the Midos, the book of, of how to act. He's saying while the book of the, the covenant of the Sinai is how to act as members of the covenantal community, the patriarchal covenant addresses the Iowa and the teaching how to experience his Jewishness. It sensitizes him to, specifically to Jewish ways. It expresses attitudes, ideals, and sentiments which will still speak to us. It guides our feelings, consciousness, rather than our physical acts. Meaning to say, whereas the Torah says, put on filling, shake the lulav. It's guiding our physical actions. When we look at the lives of how our patriarchs act, we look at the lives the way the Avos acted, we're supposed to glean ethics and how to think about things. We're supposed to glean ideas about how to act, not 
in, in, as in physical actions, but how to go about life, what our mitos are supposed to be. Again, it's much more mitos oriented. Our sages teach us, our father Abraham was tested with ten trials of faith and character, and he withstood them all, demonstrating the extent of Abraham's love of God. These ten trials with, with climactic akeda as the supreme expression of martyrdom are the source of many Jewish traits which are still prevalent among our people. In studying their life experiences during our impressionable childhood and throughout our adult years, we absorb their values and nuances of feeling into our Jewish consciousness. Every Jew should ask, when will my deeds be like those of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? So what's he saying? What he's saying is as follows. The idea of Maisa Avosim Lebanon is that while we have the Torah and as in, in the law book, the laws are there to teach us how to act and how to, in terms of our, you know, the, the mitzvahs. But there are, there, behind that, there are ethics and there are values. Where are those coming from? So, well, yes, the laws are there also to impart those but a lot of those ethics and values aren't necessarily commands. You're not going to find them in a command. They're going to come through delving into the stories and seeing how Avram acted and seeing how Yitzhak acted. And from there, you can find great values. Just think about for even like the, the, uh, the different parashashira we've had over the last couple of weeks or the drushes we've given where we've looked at the stories or one story or one nuance in an exchange between Yaakov and his sons or between Avram and Ephron or whatever it may be. And we pulled out a life lesson, a midah, a way in which we should comport, a way with how we should comport ourselves. Those are what the idea of mice of a sim for. It's not that it's destined to be this way, but rather the actions of our father are a simon, are a sign for us, this is how you should act. That's what it is. The actions of our father are, this is how you should act. Look there, and then you will know how to act. I mean, Salvatic writes in um, an essay called, um, an essay, in the introduction to Pirkei Avos, it's called Pirkei Avos and Jewish Ethics. He writes that, let me just pull this up right here. He says, nowadays, a basic investigation of morality and ethics will be of great importance. He's decrying the fact that more often than not, people tend to think you turn to halacha for how to live the halachic life. But when it comes to ethics, when it comes to... Uh, ethical problems when it comes to those sort of areas, so you look elsewhere. But he's saying, you know, within the halach, within the Torah, that's there as well. You just have to start looking for it. But, but he goes, no one, people haven't done that. People don't do it, and there, there aren't so many books written, which is why he says, I'm about to do this. He says, now it is a basic investigation of morality and ethics we have great importance. There's a crying need for clarification of many practical problems, both in the individual private and the social ethical realms. There are too many uncertainties in which we live today, uncertainties about, wh about what we ought to do. We should try to infer from our ethical tradition certain standards that should govern our conduct. In particular, I notice confusion among rabbis as regards basic problems whose solutions cannot be found in Shulchan Aruch and must be, rather be inferred by way of deduction from ancient principles and axioms. What he's saying is not everything is going to be black and white shulchan aruch. Not everything is the chicken is kosher and the chicken is not kosher. Right, there's, a, there's a famous story. I don't remember the exact how, the details, but a rabbi said something is mutter. So the young rabbi calls the old rabbi and goes, where does it say the shulchan aruch? He says, it's, a, it's the basis of the entire shulchan aruch. You know, it's common sense. There are some things, says Ray Salavechik, it's not, it's not from shulchan aruch, but it has to be inferred from deduction of axioms and ancient principles. And where are those coming from? That's coming from when you know, when you know Kol Torah Kula, when you know the Torah. 
and you look at the stories of our forefathers. So you see there are basic principles and axioms and nuances that undergird and underlie the, the, all their interactions. I will therefore concern myself here with the practical, practical aspect of Jewish morality, problems of chesed and tzedakah, word and silence, humility and pride, extremism and tolerance, din and emes, rachamim and shalom, which is mercy and peace, timidity and arrogance, the duties and prerogatives of the scholar, power and subordination, love and hatred, etc. He just listed a bunch of these ideas. These aren't halachas that you're going to say, okay, you fulfill it this exact way. How do you know exactly then how to fulfill it, how to live it, what's the right balance to strike among uh, the prerogative of the scholar, power and subordination, rachmim and shalom, when it comes to rachmanus, as in having mercy and having peace, a very, a very uh, real tension there. Sil- uh, word and silence, humility and pride, where do you know how to do that? So we can go by the fly. We can look elsewhere, but how do you know you're correct? Or you can say, God gave us the Torah. The Torah is full. The Torah contains everything. And the fact that we can't figure it out is because we maybe haven't looked hard enough. But if we look hard enough and we spend time looking at the stories, so then we could come up and figure out what the balance is and what the Torah perspective is on all of these issues. And therefore, there we can come up with the idea of by spending our time and looking at safer races and learning it oh, as we did over the last few weeks. Mice of a similar body, we can look at our forefathers and say, this is the way we should act, which is why they conclude the Nitziv writes, why then the Sefer Paracious come first? Because before we get to the mitzvahs, we need to know Sefer Hayashar, how to act, like good, up, more, good moral, upstanding people. I wish you all a wonderful Shabbos.